you know, it's there's a million ways to tell a story, and if, and if you're going to sing a love song, it doesn't always have to say, I love this girl for this reason. Um, it can be a bit more oblique, and sometimes it just confuses people, and sometimes people aren't used to hearing a rock and roll song where they don't have it spelled out for them. That's okay. I, I, this record is a lot more direct, um, so it's maybe a little bit more about the world outside of us rather than personal things. Welcome to No Filler, the music podcast dedicated to sharing the often overlooked hidden gems that fill the space between the singles on our favorite records. My name is Travis Self. With me, as always, is my brother Q up in Washington. Here I am. There he is. And that was Mr. Peter Buck, guitar player of R.E.M., in a 1986 interview uh, where he was talking about sort of the uh, the way that they approached the, the lyrics and the music for their album Life's Rich Pageant, which had just released when at the time of that interview. And um, yeah, so basically, as he kind of alluded to there, the music on this album is about sort of the world around them, like they were saying. A lot of these songs are kind of political and like not so much about personal things, like you said. Uh, but we're going to get into all of that later. First, I want to ask you, what are your thoughts? What are your experiences with R.E.M. in general as a band? So all positive thoughts, my bro, for sure. Um, for the most part, most of the the music of theirs that I've heard, I've enjoyed. What are some of those songs that you he- you've heard? So yeah, growing up, um, I guess "Imitation of Life" was probably the first song of theirs that I heard. You know that I actually listened to when it was new. You know what I mean? Like before that, I'm sure it was "End of the World as We Know It." Um, is that the name of the song, or am I just? Yeah, that's, that's the name of the song. That's the name of it, yeah. Okay. Uh, and Losing My Religion. But all those songs came out before we were born, I believe. Or at least before we I could ever have yeah, actually like made a memory of hearing it. But I remember actually hearing Imitation of Life on the radio. So that came out in, seeing, in, like, in 2001. Okay. That so was on their were, album Reveal. So we were 14 when that came out. I remember seeing the music video for it and seeing them on either SNL or maybe Conan. It may have know. even been Total Request Live too. It was, it was 2000. Yeah, it could have been. I don't, yeah, yeah. But no, I love. I like REM a lot. Um, their first album, Murmur, I got into. Mm-hmm. Um, what's the first song on their radio? Free Europe. Yeah, yeah, dude, I like that stuff. 
So, but this so this album that we're covering today, I'm not familiar with at all. Okay, so this is their fourth album. So, like you said, Murmur was their first that came out in 1983. Uh, Reckoning was the second album, came out in 1984. Reckoning's good too. Yeah, it's great. And then Fables of the Reconstruction was the next one, came out in '85. Uh, the one we're talking about today, Life Switch Pageant, came out in '86. If you look at their their first five records, it's it's crazy because it was literally a record every year from '83 to '87. So they were hugely prolific in the '80s, and then four years later in 1991, they came out with Out of Time, uh, which really kind of propelled them into like the mainstream. That that was the album that had. Losing My Religion on it, uh, which was a mega, mega huge hit at the time. That's a really good song. Yeah. So anyway, Life's Rich Pageant, as I talked about. Um, actually, you know what? Let's pause on that before we get into it, before we get too ahead of ourselves. And let's do our weekly segment, What You Heard. And um, Q, do you want to go first or do you want me to go first? Mine really can't tie in at, to REM whatsoever. It's in a whole different building as far as genres are concerned so maybe it would make more sense for me to go first i'm not sure mine doesn't either but yeah let's let's have you go first this time okay so this week and last week as well uh so i don't know if i've mentioned this before or not but my company shuts down for two weeks starting on thursday of next week so leading up to that obviously we have a ton of work to do we have a bunch of projects that we got to button up and so another developer and myself have essentially taken over one of the meeting rooms for the last two weeks and just like buckled down and really worked hard to get something done. And uh, we just so happened to like the exact same type of music as far as like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be really niche here. And this is funny because it has nothing to do with my pick for the day, but um, we like video game soundtracks, right? Q, you know this about me. Oh, yeah. He also likes... Um, sort of uh, like down-tempo type stuff or like, you know, electronic music of any type, really. Um, so I was playing uh, some Massive Attack just randomly, and I admit that I have never really listened to this album all the way through until last week, really. And um, it's... What album? It's called Mezzanine. came out in 1998. It's the, no, that's like their biggest one. That's right? their yeah. That's their biggest. They're uh, most well known. Yeah, I, th- I think so. It's it's the album art that I always associate with Massive Attack, right? Same. Yeah. What is that like a? It looks like a, is that some sort of bug? Some yeah, blown up picture of a bug. It's definitely a bug. I wish I could name it off the top of my head because yeah. I feel like I should yeah. know the name of that bug. So, um, I remember my first sort of like association with Massive Attack was actually uh, this movie that came out in 2005 called Stay. And it has Ryan Gosling, Naomi Watts, Ewan McGregor. Yeah, that is a powerful film. What a great film. film. What a great fucking film. Anyway, there's great music in, in that film. And one of the one of the songs, it's playing in, a, in a, like a club bar that this guy walks into, is track one on Mezzanine called Angel. Anyway... Massive Attack is sort of, um, you know, they were at the the early origins of like trip hop, and um, that sort of uh, more 
it's really dark um, sounds and like you know it, it merges like hip hop and like soul and dub with like trip hop and, and all this kind of stuff but what's really it? pretty um, vocals too yeah oh yeah and you're gonna like hear showcased that showcased a lot you're gonna hear that in this song what's what's interesting to me is the way that the two vocalists are, are really like stark opposites of each other but yeah the, the two vocalists that, that are on this track uh, the, the, the female vocalist is Elizabeth Fraser and the male vocalist is Robert Del Naha. Might be pronouncing that wrong. But anyway, they have very, very different, starkly different singing styles, and I think it really like helps with the way that the the the, the vibe that these songs have because she almost sings almost like like uh, not like operatic, but I mean like very like traditional style like of singing. Anyway, let's just play the track. This is track 10. It's called Group 4, and we're going to jump into about the middle of the song just so you can kind of hear a verse and a chorus. So anyway, here we go. was really sweet yeah it's awesome like that. Right? yeah man that's like a moodier 
Tosca with with some yeah distorted guitar thrown in. Yeah, I would definitely throw throw Massive Attack into the same the same building at least as as like a Tosca. And it's got that slow, gradual build. Yeah, like, like any good down tempo song. Right. Yeah. And what's great um, about it's very it, repetitive, it, but it's it's worth paying attention to. Yeah, and, and you saw right there. You know, a lot of the songs on this album kind of give you the same kind of thing where it's like you know like i said his vocals are kind of like they've got some attitude to him i guess yeah it's, i guess almost you know on the verge of rapping but not really uh and then yeah. like it had that big section there before her vocals came in where it was just instrumental you know he had some guitar yeah, work cool. in the background and then she yeah, comes in build up and then she comes in with this really like dreamy almost sh- like bjork or like yeah the kind of vocals you'd hear on uh Oh man, this is probably gonna age us big time, but you remember Pure Moods, right? Oh. Is that like the, the infomercial? Yes. It was that, are you, that so compilation. You, are you album. saying like an Inya kind of thing? Like Inya, that yeah. Yeah. That kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, um so that's that. I've been listening to a bunch of just like you know, instrumental stuff or things like this which are more like laid back and and whatnot. So it'll be nice to segue into rem here in a little bit but first let's uh let's do your pick for the week q so uh i've been starting alphabetically going through uh my uh i guess older records that i own you know ones that i've picked up at thrift stores um not my new stuff you know not new artists uh but just the old kind of random stuff that I've, I always kind of go through it and then re-listen to the albums all the way through and see if if I enjoy them, you know, uh, if I want to keep them on the shelf or not. And I came across this album I kind of forgot about owning. Um, it was just a, a goodwill find. This American guitarist who goes, his name is Al D. Miola. You ever heard of him? Yeah, actually, I have. Yeah, so he's a. I would I would put him in the like Pat Metheny category. Okay. Uh, jazz fusion, you know. Uh, there were a lot of artists like this around the seventies, like Jeff Beck. Um, yeah. Oh, I can't think of th- uh, Roy Clark. Not Roy Clark. Something Clark. Maybe it is Roy Clark. Well, what album do you have? So I have an album of his called. Um, elegant gypsy okay his second studio album came out in 1977 really cool stuff so it's 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 jazz fusion it's um it's pretty wide ranging from song to song um like i think the last song on side a is just very very traditional spanish guitar kind of music um but the song i want to play is the first track on the album it's really cool. It kind of threw me off guard, you know, because I'd forgotten about it. Um, it's a really, really cool track. Uh, so this is, again, um, his name is Al Di Miola. This is a song off of his 1977 record, Elegant Gypsy. It's called Flight Over Rio. Thank you. 
That may be the first jazz fusion on No Filler. Nah, dude. Pat Metheny. Ah, good point. But the song was more like <laughs> ambient, I guess, you know, the one that we played. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Uh, so drummer on that track was Steve Gadd, who played on uh, Asia for Steely Dan. Really? Yeah. Interesting. Just on that track. Yeah, uh, okay. Sure. Well, he plays in, the, in there's one other track on this album that he plays. Okay, yeah, yeah. Drums on. Cool. So, Q, when you saw that, I'm guessing you just picked that up based on the cover art or what? Yes. Yeah, okay. Yeah, because, I mean, yeah. what's funny, uh, are you looking at his uh, discography right now? Um, I can be. Look at the album art for Land of the Midnight Sun. Because I would pick that up in a hot oh, minute dude. if yeah, I saw dude. that at a record Hell store. Hell yeah. Because that looks I haven't yet, awesome. but now that I know about the guy, I'm definitely picking it up. Yeah, man. Yeah, that's cool. All right, so let's talk about R.E.M., and specifically the album that we are covering today, which would be Life's Rich Pageant, which came out in 1986. So, basically, I, I feel like R.E.M. is similar to Talking Heads in a lot of ways as far as like how they came into like the mainstream because they... Now, they're not... I wouldn't put them in the same group of like the genre. Their genres aren't really the same. Cause like we talked about talking heads, they were more grouped into a uh, new wave. They were kind of considered like sort of the founders of new wave, you know? Right. REM has always been alternative rock, right? Like you could almost say that they were the sort of at the forefront of alt rock and like, we, we know that they were hugely influential to grunge bands of the 90s. Um, Kurt Cobain specifically uh, always talked about Michael Stipe and R.E.M. as being mega huge influences on him. I had no idea. Yeah, yeah. Like, it's it's there's even... Um, I was watching some interviews or some documentary about Kurt Cobain and Michael Stipe, as in the lead singer of R.E.M., um, said that he was talking with... Like before, right before Kurt Cobain died, like he was planning to and like in talks with with Kurt to do like a collaboration together, and like he was doing that wow. specifically to try to give him something to like grasp onto, you know, because everybody was kind of worried about him at the time because he was oh, depressed yeah. and all this kind of stuff. And oh man, so like God knows how that would have been, you know, if they collaborated together. Wow. But anyway, so yeah, REM at the time that they came out and like basically up to, up to this album, they were sort of your classic, like cult following college radio success kind of rock band, you know, mm -hmm. getting sort of this, this following. And they've always had the, you know, when you think about REM an REM song, and when you think about Michael Stipe, like they're kind of known for his lyrics are kind of, um, nonsensical I guess or like so sometimes they're kind of known for being like not uh, they don't necessarily make sense or they're more like uh, metaphorical and like especially when you think of the lyrics on it's the end of the world yeah sure right. exactly 
I wonder if if we could compare him to oh man, what's the singer? What's the singer's name? For uh, the Shins, is it Tim Mercer? Yeah, Mercer. Yeah, Rob Mercer. Mm-hmm. Tim Mercer. Um, something Mercer. Yeah. Let me look it up. I could see that. I never ever put those two and two together, but James Mercer. James. Mercer. Yeah, just where you know some people will say, oh, it's a little too highbrow. Like, oh, it's almost like he he would just one he he will go about assuming that his audience knows what he's talking about. Yeah, there's he's, a there's he's a, referencing yeah a novelist or something like you know like yeah sure like the famous line that everyone knows. Leonard Bernstein, you know. Yeah, yeah, sure, yeah. There's, there's a little bit of that for sure. Um, yeah, Mercer does that kind of stuff, and yeah, and at least in the early Shins, yeah, music. But another, another reason I'm kind of comparing him to, to um, David Byrne at least, is that um, it sounds like Michael Seiple's also very like socially awkward when it came to like interviews and stuff. Yeah, you could kind of you can kind of pick that up. Yeah, and there's even I, I was reading an interview, a 2011 interview that he did with the Guardian, um, where he even talked about that. Where he said, so this guy who interviewed him, uh, his name is Sean O'Hagan. So he's a writer for uh, the Observer, I guess. It was I guess it was published in the Observer, but it, but I, I stumbled upon it on the Guardian website. Anyway. He had interviewed him like three times throughout his career. And like the first interview that he had with him was in 1988, uh, which was when they came out with their sixth album, Green. Um, And he was just saying that like, you know, he would, he answers questions, but like in like really short bursts of words, you know, and sometimes they don't even have Mm -hmm. anything to do with the question. And, Hmm. uh, Michael says that uh, he says I still hadn't learned how to talk or how to look someone in the eye and finish a thought I'm much better at that now but I'll carry that with me my whole life the massive insecurity of not being articulate I feel like especially he's way in his head that's what I'm saying in his own head right exactly and like there was the interview it was the clip that I played that entered us into our talking heads episode that was from a video interview and when you watch that interview, like you can tell uh, that David Byrne is super uncomfortable. He's not making eye contact with the interviewee for your mm. very soft spoken. Like you can tell kind of the same, same kind of thing. But anyway, it's interesting to me when somebody's like that and then you, you, you see them on stage and they're super eccentric. Like Michael Stipe is super, super eccentric on stage. Always has been like flailing yeah. around. He doesn't play guitar yeah. or anything. So it's just him and the microphone. Um, and then you, the lyrics are really always like, you know, very like confident and whatnot. But anyway, so, um, from what I, from what I've read, the album that came out before this one called Fables of the Reconstruction, uh, has sort of a, like a murkier is kind of the word that I've, I've seen a couple times to describe it. And I would agree with that. Like not very energetic sort of like subdued songs on it. Okay. Um, and they recorded for the first time they recorded overseas. They recorded in London, uh, this album. And apparently it was like cold and rainy the whole time. And like that affected 
sort of the mood and like it came out on the album you know they weren't mm. they weren't you know they they were held up in the studio like they didn't go out very much because the weather was it kind so of reminds horrible. me of how you know we talked about uh allison chain's album dirt on our yeah. first episode how the la riots kind of affected yeah they were right down the street the overall feeling and sound of the album yeah exactly um but yeah so Overall, like it's sort of well known that they weren't, they aren't too happy. Um, at least at the time, they weren't too happy with the album itself. Um, they've gone on to say that it's actually become like one of their favorite albums, like in retrospect. But they're saying that, like, you know, even like Mike Mills, which is the bass player, is quoted a, tons of times as saying like, "Oh yeah, it sucks." You know, just like that's what he, that's his response to. Oh, what do you think about? Fables of the Reconstruction. Oh, it sucks. So, like, they weren't happy with it, probably because they just had a bad experience recording it. And they didn't really like the experience they had with the the producer, who was a new producer for them, a guy by the name of Joe Boyd, who was actually sort of known for his work with more English folk musicians, including Nick Drake, which is a pretty big deal, right? Oh. Yeah, that's a big deal. But, uh, so that's why they went with, they went with him. Um, but they just, in the end, they just didn't, they weren't, they weren't too happy with the way that it, that it sounded. But anyway, like when you listen, when you listen to that album, like there's some great songs on there, no doubt about it, but it does have a sort of like somber vibe throughout the album. So anyway, when it comes time to record Life's Rich Pageant, they come back to the United States and they choose a, another producer again, a new guy uh, named Don Jemin, who ha- uh, had recorded a lot of John Mellencamp's albums. And so basically, the way they said it is that they kind of liked the sounds of the acoustic guitar on those Mellencamp albums, and they wanted to sort of get that sound, you know, because mm-hmm. they weren't getting that with the way that the, the previous record turned out. Like these really rich guitar and like what not so anyway the big thing that i want cue that i want you to pay attention to especially is the drumming on this album because it's a it marks a huge change in the way that he drums and um there's a i was reading the um the pitchfork review of they wrote a review for this album um, when the 25th anniversary um edition came out uh the guy says and this is so true he goes, in addition to giving the melodic leads their own space, he emphasizes the muscle in Barry's beats and the intricate interaction between the rhythm section. Uh, cool. So, as he says here, no wonder the drummer's on the album cover. So, yeah, if you look at the album cover, and this is something that I wanted to talk about. Actually, first, you know, first, let's play the first song. Oh, good call. Okay. Yeah, so let's play the first song. So just know that coming out of the recording session and the album fables reconstruction fables of the reconstruction they wanted to sort of change the the get a change of pace and that's why they went back to america and that's why this album sounds so energetic and so like it sounds louder and it sounds more confident like they just they wanted to to get back and and sort of do more more energetic songs and that's what this is. So this first track that we're going to play is actually track 1. 
It's called Begin the Begin. that's an interesting song structure yeah seems like uh, it's like you're expecting like a transition of some kind and it just keeps going like just keeps going and going and going as far as like the same kind of it almost seems like the verse just keeps going yeah so that's interesting you say that dude because um according to peter buck which is a guitar player he said that when they started to write the song at least the music for it they sat down and wanted to create a, uh, as he says, a crazy song with no re- repetition except for the riff. So like that, yeah, they were hmm. going for that kind of like doesn't follow uh, the standard sort of like song structure, right? So yeah. anyway, like I said before we played this clip, the drummer, and let me just go through the roster real quick because we haven't done that yet. But the uh, the drummer's name is Bill Berry. And uh, you also have Peter Buck on guitars, which I said, Mike Mills on bass. And Mike Mills also sings a lot of the backup vocals, which has always been um, a a favorite uh, aspect of R.E.M. songs, uh, to me at least, is his backing vocals. And then Michael Stipe, of course, uh, lead singer. So that's the core group. That's that's the founding members. So anyway, Bill Berry, the drummer, is the forehead and the eyeballs that you see on the record cover. And it gets yeah, cut, it cuts cuts his face off at the nose. Cuts off at the nose, and below below that is a very subtle picture of two um, buffaloes, and so that's kind of like a, a oh yeah, like a buffalo bill, I guess is what they're trying to say. I don't know. <laughs> oh, yeah, but when you when you listen to a lot of the songs, they are talking about, and this this song in particular, 
this is like I said, this is a very political uh, album, and they're talking a lot about this song in particular is about sort of the founding fathers of the country, um, and the next song that we play also very much so about just sort of the original genocide, I guess, of like the Indians and shit. But we'll get into that next. Native Americans. Native Americans. I think Sorry. is what you meant to say, brother. Sorry. So anyway, <laughs> here's the um, here's some lyrics from this, and this kind of alludes to what you're talking about with uh, what's the guy, the Mercer, James Mercer, with James Mercer, or even Talking Heads, David Byrne, or even freaking Donald. Fagan I mean, I was thinking Bob in. Dylan, man. Yeah. So or you're just like, what the fuck are you talking about? Yeah. So listen to this. That's the thing, though. He's It's very obvious what he's talking about here. But anyway, here's the first verse. Birdie in the hand for life's rich demand. The insurgency began and you missed it. I looked for it and I found it. Miles Standish proud, congratulate me. A philanderer's tie, a murderer's shoe. So Miles Standish, I had no idea who Miles Standish was, but that's a person. And he was like... Uh, on the on the Mayflower, basically. Uh, oh, got it. Yeah, so he was like, he was a military officer, uh, hired by the Pilgrims as a as an advisor for the Plymouth Colony. So like, literally the 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 first colony in America, right? So he's saying, Miles Standish, proud, congratulate me for like basically taking over the land or whatever. And like the second verse, life's rich demand creates supply in the hand of the powers, the only vote that matters. As in like life's uh, bounty or whatever, supply, Mm -hmm. all we're doing is giving power to the wealthy or whatever by just buying all this shit. That's what what he's getting at. So anyway, um, but... I don't know if you, if you don't know how the earlier REM songs sound or sounded, you may not really pick up on how much like how interesting the drums sound compared to what came before it, right? Like the drumming was more straightforward on their earlier stuff, and in this album, like like what they were saying, it's like there's no, it's no surprise that he's on the album cover, you know? Yeah. Uh, but anyway, something that. What's interesting is, so this album is kind of the first one that got them to sort of start to get mainstream, and then it really took off with Out of Time a few years later. But um, so much of this album, like, contradicts, like, sort of the standard formula for a very mainstream, popular uh, music act, right? So, like, the album cover is an example of that. They And they apparently R.E.M. does this a lot. Uh, there's no apostrophe in the word "lives" on, the, like the name of this album, right? Life's rich pageant. They well, that's not the name of this album. Yeah, it is. Oh, yeah, it is. <laughs> Take that out, brother. For some reason, I was thinking of the. So there's no one. there's no apostrophe. If you look at the back of the album cover, which I'm looking at right now, the songs are out of order. But huh. but like not out of order, like the numbers are out of order. The song tracks don't match up with the track list. 
Which oh my god! Back in the eighties, must have been confusing as fuck, right? Dude. But I anyway, mean, so they're just they're trolling. Yeah, I guess. Are so. they purposely trying to to make sure they don't reach the mainstream? So here's what's interesting, and I didn't make this connection until right now. On the left side, and I'll have to post a picture on this on the um, on the side the the show notes of this episode on the website, so you guys can see what I'm talking about. Uh, so on the left side. Begin the Begin actually is listed as track one, but the okay. the track below it is Hyena, which is not track two. That's actually I think like track, looks like it's track five. Yeah, track five exactly. Um, but on the right side of the back of the album, you have on the left side the tracks out of order, but on the left side there's a bunch of tr- there's squares, like check almost like check boxes, and next to each checkbox is a, a like a two or three words from each of the songs. So I, I'm, I'm guessing this is the right order over here, but with a lyric from the, from the song, because the first box I found it, Miles Standish proud. That's from track one. So it's almost like they want you to like listen and pay attention to the lyrics and then come in and fill out the track record the way it's supposed to be. That's kind of cool. That is cool. Cause they're almost like pay attention to the lyrics. You know, that's what yeah. we want you to associate with like the track list is like, like listen to the fucking words, you know. But anyway, that's my guess. I could be way off, but the, I bet you that's exactly what they did. But anyway, that's obviously sort of weird, right? That's not something that most bands do. Put the songs out of order. What's funny is, I, so I bought the record, the vinyl, and I remember I was like, wait, this isn't right. Like I knew it wasn't right because I was so used to seeing the, the track listing in the correct order, you know. Yeah. Anyway. So anyway, um. Let's move on. Dude, to hang on. Have you looked have you looked it up, man? Maybe you've got maybe you've got like a really rare pressing. No, 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 no. That's that's perp that's that, <laughs> no, 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 dude. Plus dude, this that's, is a, my my mind would have jumped straight to that. This is a fucking reissue anyway. This is a reprinting uh, of it. Anyway. Um so stuff like that, right? They did they did weird things like that. That that wouldn't that doesn't align with, and not to mention like po- political songs, right? What's funny is uh, that same interview that I was reading off uh, the quote from Michael Stipe from the Guardian that he did in 2011. He was talking about has they started to gain popularity. It's sort of very similar to it seems like the way that that um, Tom York was dealing with the success that they got on OK Computer. Yes, he says that. Um, Here's a quote from Michael Stipe. I had to grapple with a lot of contradictions back in the 80s. I would look out from the stage at the Reagan youth, as in Ronald Reagan, right? Right. That was when REM went beyond the freaks, the fat girls, the art students, and the indie music fanatics. Suddenly we had an audience that included people who would have sooner kicked me on the street didn't let me walk by unperturbed. I'm exaggerating to make a point, but it was certainly an audience that, in the main, did not share my political leanings or affiliations and did not like how flamboyant I was as a performer or, indeed, a sexual creature. They probably held lots of weird... Oh, wait, I'm sorry. They probably held lots of my worldviews in great disregard, and I had to look out on that and think, well, what do I do with that? So, there you go. Yeah, that's... Huh. I mean, that's something you think about 
Um, but yeah, the the more famous you get, the more likely that you're gonna that your sound, you know, your music might attract people as fans that you otherwise wouldn't align with politically or you know with your worldview or anything. Right. And yeah. You you gotta kind of struggle with that, you know. As yeah. a reality, uh, especially uh, you know, if if he's up there singing the strike that we just played to a bunch right. of of Reagan supporters, and he's singing about uh, you know supply and demand gives power to the to to the wealthy as a bad thing. I would think that most people in a, a, like a, a Reagan crowd probably wouldn't agree with that. But there you go. The funny thing about Michael Stipe, he's well known for sort of cryptic lyrics. This isn't so cryptic, but some of his other stuff is where it's like, you know, you have to really dig into the lyrics. And I bet you a lot of people in the crowd, especially when they became more and more popular, only came to listen to the the hits, you know? So they might not yeah. even know what he's talking not, about. Not paying attention to the lyrics. Yeah, exactly. So anyway, let's, let's segue into the next track here. Uh, and you're going to see the theme kind of continue as far as like the lyric subject matter is concerned. But uh, this song, um, it's got such a great feeling to it. It's very optimistic sounding. His voice uh, uh, kind of is very sort of um, emotive, I guess, or like very, like Michael Stipe is such a great rock voice. It's like, you know, there's really none other like it. It but seems anyway, like he sings in a deeper. He like, has a pretty wide range. Range. Yeah. And his in the earlier stuff, it seems like he sings more on the low end. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, this song is called Koyahoga. Yeah, 
Good vibes. That put me in like a autumn, fall headspace. Overcast guys, chilly. What about it put you in that vibe, that mood? I don't know, man. Some, I, you know, sometimes songs will just put me in a frame of mind. I guess just it just felt like it felt like a, a you know winter coat warm snuggy gloves kind of okay. song i don't know man did you pick what are the up, lyrics i mean yeah. it sounds like he's singing about like a homecoming kind of thing or they're thinking back to his youth yeah so okay go. i so i i thought that too when i casually would just pick up on words here and there like when i heard the song for the first few times before i really sat down and read the lyrics and sort of knew that this was a more political record right so let me read them to you Let's put our heads together and start a new country up. Our father's father's father tried, erased the parts he didn't like. Let's try to fill it in, bank the quarry river swim. We knee-skinned it, you and me. We knee-skinned that river red. I don't know what that fucking means. The chorus says, this is where we walked. This is where we swam. Take a picture here. Take a souvenir. So that to me, what he's singing about, especially this this line here, our father's father's father tried, erase the parts he didn't like. That's as in like our forefathers who came over here. Erase the parts he didn't like, meaning uh, took out the Native Americans. Is what he's singing about. Yeah. Er- erasing, yeah. quote unquote, indigenous yep. people and their culture. Yep. And so the chorus to me reads as, it's almost like he's going from the perspective of the indigenous people that used to live here. He says, this is where we walked. This is where we swam. Hold on, let me say that again. I keep fucking up. We swam. We swam. We swam. We swam. <laughs> this is where we walked. This is where we swam. Take a picture here. Take a souvenir. As in like this land, you know, that we as Americans are living on now is where indigenous people used to walk and swim. And all we do and now live is their sh- lives. Yeah. We show up and we're like, Hey, look at this. Great. Let's take a picture and a fucking souvenir, you know? Right. Right. Let's go to the, the grand Canyon and, and grab a fucking magnet or whatever for our refrigerator. You know what I mean? Yeah. Hey, so I'm looking at, this is off topic a little bit, but I'm looking at the Wikipedia for this album. And I guess you have a vinyl copy. Yeah. Uh, is side one labeled dinner side and side two supper side? 
Let me take a looky loo here. I mean, you've got a re-release, so I don't know if maybe that's just in the original versions, but no, no, no. Hold on. It's it's. I'm just wondering if there's any yes. reason. Yes, yes, you're right. So yeah. side A, dinner side, yeah. Dinner I mean, and supper. Those are the same. It means the same thing, right? Dinner and supper. That's the same. Yeah, you're right. You're right. But I think supper is sort of a colloquialism for a certain. I'm guessing a certain part of the country probably says supper. Yeah, supper time. Maybe. Right. Um, but anyway, it does um, talk about the incorrect album track listing. Right. Notes. Right. Yeah, it's it's the orders given one five ten eight two seven four nine three eleven. It leaves out uh, Superman. Yeah. So interesting. And that's uh, the last underneath three. the bunker. Yeah. So anyway, um, let me read another part of the the lyrics here. Uh, it says, um, "Let's put our heads together and start a new country up." Up underneath the riverbed, we'll burn the river down. So Cuyahoga uh, is this well-known river in Ohio that was so uh, notoriously polluted that it caught fire several times in the 50s and 60s. Wow. So that's what he's saying. We'll burn the river down. That's how much we're going to pollute these rivers is that we're gonna, they're going to catch on fire. And so, like, apparently, like, that was one of the fires that led to the founding of the EPA back in the day. Oh, shit. So, like, here is, so, you know, this song is sort of like a, like a call to arms or whatever for, like, activists and stuff. Because he's saying, hey, let's, let's start a new country up. We could start, start again, you know, like. Yeah, it's it's very John and Yoko, you know. Yeah, sure. Imagine. Right, right, exactly. But anyway, um, so now I got to figure out what our next track is going to be, and that's going to be tough because I've gone back and forth. But I got to go with track number ten, which is called "Just a Touch."
It was great. It was very punk. Yes, it is, Q. And there's a good reason for that. <laughs> the drummer, especially the drum beat, was very punk. Yeah. So here's here's why. It's a it got a, a very punk vibe, right? Uh, this is actually one of the first songs they wrote as a band together. And so they oh, just that's awesome. Yeah, and they actually, you know, they they had recorded it, you know, before in the past, but they just never put it on an album. So like they decided, hey, let's let's re record it and put it on this album. So anyway, um, I, I don't know if this is a hundred percent factual or not because I, I found it on a um, actually a really really cool blog. Uh, it's a blog spot, so it's one of those like old uh, blog formats, but it's called the REM Project blog. And this guy uh, sort of went. His goal with this blog was to go album by album and talk about each song as a new post. And his his article about this song in particular. He says that it's a it's a story of the day that Elvis died is the story behind the, the lyrics. He says, and again, I don't know where this guy got this from, but I'm going to say it because it's a cool story. He says, according to Michael, as a Michael's type, when he was working as a busboy in St. Louis as a teenager, there was a Elvis impersonator performing at the restaurant. And instead of canceling the show when the death of Elvis was reported, the impersonator, who had not heard the news, showed up anyway and was perplexed that the audience was made up entirely of women dressed in black. Because they were mourning, I guess. I don't fucking know. Oh my God, But yeah. the, the poster for the show, for this impersonator, was advertised as, Is it Elvis or Just a Touch? And that's the name of the song, Just a Touch. Oh my God, that's great. So anyway... Yeah, cool song. Anyway, I love that they um, that they decided to to resurrect an old song and throw it on this album because, like you said, it's a it's definitely it's punk. Like it's that eighties punk. The early I liked 80s. it, man. Yeah, it's great. But that's I what wish that's there was more of that. That's how REM started, though. Like they were in the punk scenes back in the day. You know, well, that was, when did they actually start? Because Murmur doesn't sound like that. No, it doesn't. Uh, they started in nineteen eighty. Okay, so you, was yeah, I mean, three, right? Yeah, so you know when they were forming, or when they first started, and it was probably playing in the, in the garage or whatever. Yeah, they were probably playing punk rock, you know. Sure. But like, if you think sure. about, I always like to think about music in the same way that I like to think about like the branches on the evolutionary tree, right? The species or whatever. Like, if you think about the branches of fucking music or whatever, I talked about Talking Heads earlier. Both sort of stem from punk rock, right? But then it's like. Talking Heads goes one way on a Spons new branch. Spawns the new wave. For new wave. Uh, and then REM starts to make this other branch that just turns into alt rock, which eventually leads to grunge, you know. So, like, they all sort of start from punk, right? Yeah. But anyway. It's um, cool. And then on the other, you know, you got a whole other branch uh, for blues, you know. And well, yeah. Well, blues goes and, even and further dude, back. They meet... They meet together so often. Well, no, I would say the blues is like the fucking trunk of the fucking rock branch. Or rock oh, I guess tree, so, you know? yeah. You know, or, hey, blues. you know what? Maybe gospel music, kind of like what we were talking about in yeah, our yeah. Kings of Leon episode. Yeah, yeah, you're right. You're right. Yeah, but that's what I'm saying. If you keep going back, right, it's like yeah. gospel, blues, rock, and then rock branches off into all these other fucking genres. But anyway, um, so yeah, that song's great, right? But anyway, the, the reason I played that is, you know, they just did a lot of really creative things on this album. Like, they threw in a punk rock song. 
Um, like if you heard on that song too, I guarantee you this is not the way they used to play it, but there was like a piano in the background. Yeah. Uh, you know, an old timey sound and yeah, yeah, exactly. Honky tonk. Right. And, um, on some of the other, the, the other songs, um, there's a song and I almost played it, but you know what? We're going to play We'll play the opening because, um, it's really only the opening. It's, it's not, it's not something that stays throughout the whole song. But uh, let's play, let's play track number eight, uh, just a little bit of it. Uh, it's called "I Believe." Yeah. So you see that how that banjo just comes out of nowhere. Yeah, that was almost like a separate idea. Yeah. I mean, that song could start with that snare hit to completely take off that banjo. You know. Right. Now play play the opening to Underneath the Bunker track 6. Okay, now what style of music is that? I don't know. It's almost like a Spanish, like, you know. It's not like Gypsy. What'd you say? Gypsy. Gypsy, yeah. That just came to mind because I was sure. listening to that Aldi Miola earlier. Yeah, but anyway. Yeah. So, they, yeah, they're all over the place on this. But what's funny about that is that those are the two songs. Nope, I take it back. I was about to go. I was about to have a theory. I, was, I thought those were the two tracks that were left off the they were track listing on the back, but I believe it's not. Underneath the bunker was. Underneath the bunker was. So, so the two songs that that the, the so it, the last two songs on each side were were not featured okay. on the track list. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. So yeah, a lot of cool things on this album. Uh, this sort of got them. Uh, it was their most popular album to date. Um, it peaked, uh, I think it peaked at, it says, uh, 43 in the UK, but it was their first gold record hit number 21, uh, on the billboard charts. So from then on out, it just became more and more, they, they became more and more popular. Um, but anyway, the, what I've always loved about REM, you could hear it on some of the tracks, the, the, the backup vocals. I've always loved that. I think it adds another layer of like Mike Mills is a great vocalist and he, he's a bass player. He does a great job. Um, but, uh, they just have a very wide range. They're not afraid to, to do interesting, different things. The lyrics are always really intriguing. The way that they put together songs is different. You know, they, they, you know, they always just craft the songs in ways that you're not expecting, you know, and I think yeah. this, this album is kind of a perfect example of like they decided, you know, they had such a measurable time recording Fables of the Reconstruction that it feels like they just really sort of opened up and like just decided to, to just have fun. And, you know, that's what this record became. And I think uh, the producer obviously uh, has a lot to do with the way that it sounds, you know, like the drums just sound like you know loud and confident and like his vocals sound 
just great, you know. The guitars are great. Everything's great. So yeah, that's that's our um, that's our quick peek at REM's Life's Rich Pageant. I would say uh, it's one of those albums that you need to listen to all the way through to get a good feel for it. Uh, that was just kind of a scratching the surface. But Q, I would say to you, if you like to murmur, you need to listen to their first four albums all the way through. Okay. Yeah, I've I've heard Murmur and I've heard Reckoning. Okay, you've heard those two all the way through. Yeah, Murmur yeah. is 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 great. That's an album that we might circle back to later at a later date. Um, but, uh, yeah, their first four albums were just amazing. And then the, you know the next album too. You know you know it's funny. I said for some reason I, uh, I, I I guess Spotify is missing some of their albums because. Yeah, they are. I said that they they made an album every year for the first four years of their existence as a band, but that's actually not true. It's it's actually they're actually more prolific than that. They came out with an album from '83 through '88, so for the first six years of their existence every year they came out with an album i mean that's fucking impressive that's yeah that's pretty fucking crazy it's it's crazy i think the beatles were were like that they they came out with like multiple albums in the same years at some yeah at some i know years. marvin gay was also yeah extremely prolific in his early years yeah it's just insane uh but anyway so to close out first of all let's just tee up the next the next full-length episode uh we're going to continue our Radiohead uh, fest with Amnesiac. Uh, and this is, we're nearing the end, I guess, because we're going to end on, well, no, we actually, we got three, we've got three left because we're going to end on In Rainbows. So, anyway, we're going to do Amnesiac. Yes. Um, but in between that, we will have a sidetrack episode. I'm not sure what we're going to cover. But to close out this episode, first, actually, I got, you know what? I just keep getting ahead of myself. Go to our website, nofillerpodcast.com, uh, where we have show notes for every episode. Uh, you can listen to all the episodes. Uh, you can find sources for the, for each uh, episode, as well as a track listing of every song that we that we mentioned, including the what you heard and the intros and the outros and all that good stuff. But anyway, so to close out this episode, the last song on this record, which was also the second single. It's called Superman. And uh, interestingly enough, it is a cover of a song called Superman, of course, by a band called The Click, which came out in 1969. So uh, it's a pretty faithful rendition of the song. It sounds exactly like the R.E.M. song, but we're going to play The Click version. Uh, Again, it came out in 1969. So again, that is our episode on REM's 1986 album, Life's Rich Pageant. Uh, Again, my name is Travis. And my name is Quentin. And we'll talk to you all next time.
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 